We're continuing through the bruised read by Richard Sibbs. Uh, I think our, our plan, uh, at least, you know, it can always change, but the plan is at least for the rest of this month, I'll be doing the, the Sunday school and we'll do one chapter at a time. So if you're reading the book, we're on chapter five now, so you can just be reading uh, chapter six next week and, and on for the rest of this month at least. Uh, so remember that in chapter three, we started talking about the image from Matthew 12 and Isaiah 42 about the one who does not quench the smoking flax. And uh, this is applied to Jesus. Jesus is the servant who will not quench the smoking flax. So that's what we've been focusing on for a few weeks. And the smoking flax is a description of a believer, but it's a believer who has much corruption of sin remaining in his or her life and has little grace little of the, the graces of, of the work of the Spirit. So we could call them an, an immature believer, maybe. And so Christ helps along the immature believer. He doesn't snuff that person out. And last time in chapter 4, Sib started to take us towards how then we should treat other people, how we should treat the immature believer, the smoking flax. We also should not quench the smoking flax. And maybe that believer will sin against you, or maybe they just frustrate you. Maybe they are just immature, and they drive you crazy. And so your tendency is to want to snuff them out. Uh, I don't want you to be any part of my life, but especially in the church, that doesn't really work because in the church we're called to live together as brothers and sisters and we're called to bear with one another and so we have to learn how to bear with each other uh, that's what chapter 4 was about first corinthians 13 says love bears all things so chapter 5 he's continuing on how we treat one another and he titles the chapter the spirit of mercy should move us so the idea of this chapter is that we should show mercy to those who are weak. Now the first part of the chapter is to preachers. Uh, so he talks and has some good stuff about how, do you, how you preach and, and uh, for those in authority and how to use authority. And you can read that part and it's full of good stuff. Uh, many of us are in different kinds of authority and so there are different ways we exercise our authority and we need to do that with mercy. But then uh, near the end, kind of the second half of the chapter, he really is addressing it to all people. And so he, he, he says, uh, now I want to address all believers. And that's what we're gonna focus on as we go through the lesson. He even says uh, that these things will apply to our common relations, meaning not just in the church, but your friends and your family, how do you deal with them? How do you relate to them? So here's the main lesson that we'll focus on for our time today. It is that we are debtors to the weak. We're debtors to the weak. And so that's a heading on page 35. And so we'll look at 35 and then a few pages after that. We are debtors to the weak. So turn to Romans 15. That's where we're getting this phrase from. It's a 
biblical phrase. Romans 15, verses 1 to 3. So Romans 15, beginning in verse 1, says... We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So at the end of verse one, he's talking about not pleasing ourselves. So we're not just to uh, do what is easy or comfortable for us. And then he goes on to explain why. It's, well, that's what Christ did. Christ didn't, didn't please himself. But uh, we're focusing really on the first part of verse one. We who are strong have a, a debt, an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. So Romans 14 and 15 is a discussion about what people call the weaker brother. I'm going to ask you how you would explain what the weaker brother is. But I have two disclaimers. Number one, don't give any examples (laughs) Uh, because we're going to talk about plenty of issues and and we don't need to go down more rabbit trails of issues that maybe are controversial um so don't give examples uh the weak brother is my neighbor and he does this and this right uh number two you might be wrong so be willing for me to possibly correct you Uh, so what would you say how would you describe a weaker brother just kind of what is most people's normal idea of that is what i want to get at so tony So an over-scrupulous conscience, and yeah, that's at the end of chapter 14, whatever is not from faith is sin. Okay, I think, I think you're on the right track, if I'm understanding what you're saying. Anybody else want to add to that? Chris? Less mature. Yeah, so... A less mature believer, and he's less mature maybe because he just doesn't understand the word, doesn't understand what's right and wrong. Okay, good. 
Uh, those aren't the answers that I have heard in the past from some people, from other people. Uh, but I think that's basically how I would explain it. So here's, here's how I would explain it. The weaker brother is the weaker one because he's misjudging something about right and wrong. Okay? So his conscience tells him maybe that something is wrong or maybe even that it's right. But he's wrong about that. So his conscience is wrong. His conscience has not been trained. Uh, in Hebrews, it talks about uh, having your, uh, your discernment, the powers of discernment trained as you grow in maturity. Uh, so because he's uh, weaker, he's wrong in what he is judging when he says, he says, well, I believe it's wrong to do this. Well, he's wrong about what he believes, okay? So that's why he's called the weaker brother. Um, and so sometimes when I hear people talk about the weaker brother, it sounds like moral relativism. Things that, um, well, it doesn't really matter who's right or who's wrong. You feel this way, I feel this way, we'll just get along, right? I think that's how some people think about it. And maybe they think about it because if you look at chapter 14, verse 1, uh, it says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And that word opinions is not really a great word. Uh, I like the New King James, the way it puts it is things that are doubtful, things that are doubtful. Uh, so when you read opinions, you might say, well, this person has an opinion about this, and I have an opinion about this, and we just need to get along. But it's really about things that are doubtful. Okay, so it's not like, well, this brother thinks genocide is okay. I think genocide is wrong. We'll just live together. No, if he thinks genocide is okay, he needs his conscience trained. Um, but we're talking about doubtful issues where maybe there is a right and a wrong, but you have to kind of grow to understand what that right and wrong is. You have to mature in your faith. You have to know the word better. Like you can read the Bible and in the New Testament, yeah, genocide is wrong. That's pretty easy to understand. But then other things you have to learn, you have to mature. So that's what makes a person a weaker brother. So notice again, the obligation the debt that we have is to help the weaker brother. Uh, in the context of what Paul is writing about, it's the issue, I think, of eating meat. And in chapter 14, verse 2, he says, One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. And because the church of Rome is made out of Jews and Gentiles, it seems like the issue here is the Jewish Christians who still want to eat, uh, who want to not eat the uh, ritually unclean Jewish foods, mostly pork, okay? So uh, he references this in verse 14 of chapter 14. Uh, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. So Paul's pretty clear here. There's absolutely nothing wrong with a Jewish Christian eating pork. 
uh, but that Jewish Christian has in his conscience this feeling that it still is wrong. And that's why it makes him the weaker brother. He thinks something is wrong that isn't wrong. So this is what we call uh, Christian liberty. Uh, and uh, another way of saying it is, is the liberty of the conscience. And this topic always makes me nervous because whenever people bring up Christian liberty, well, I shouldn't say whenever, but uh, many times when people bring up Christian liberty, they use it as a justification for doing whatever they want, as a justification for breaking the law of God. Uh, so I have Christian liberty. I have freedom in Christ. We're dead to the law. So those are the kinds of things that people often say as a, as a reason to disobey the law. So with this issue of Christian liberty, you can fall into two ditches on two different sides. So one of them is this problem where you can say, uh, I do whatever I want. And so uh, you call everybody else a, a legalist and uh, you, you just do, as long as your conscience, you think, well, I don't feel bad about doing that, so I'm just going to do it. Okay, so that's one problem. We certainly need to avoid that. The other problem is when we don't do what Paul is saying, which is to bear with the weaker brother. So what we need to do is we need to allow people's consciences to go to work and to grow. So in other words, what Paul is telling this, these, these, this church, he's saying, look, you're not going to stick uh, some ham in front of the Jewish Christian and force him to eat it because his conscience says that it's wrong. So how are you going to help him with his conscience? It's not by forcing him to eat this pork. It's by persuading him. Persuade his conscience. Teach him the word of God. Teach him what, what, what uh, God revealed to Peter in Acts chapter 10 and, and all these things and give him time. Be patient and pray for him. And over time, he's going to hopefully have his conscience trained. Uh, in uh, the, our London Confession, which is similar to the Westminster Confession, they both have a whole chapter on the liberty of the conscience. And so this was a very important issue to people in that day. And I think it's because they're addressing Roman Catholicism. So before the Reformation, if you were wanting to go to church, there's one kind of church to go to. You're forced to kneel before what they called the Eucharist. You're forced to look at crucifixes. You're forced to take this mass, this Eucharistic mass. And these Christians are looking around and they're saying, well, that's, that's not right that not only do I think it's wrong to do this, but I have no other options. I'm being forced to worship God in this way. And so that's why for them, it was very important to explain the liberty of the conscience. And in that chapter, they start out, they, they talk about, this isn't a right for you to disobey the law, to go do whatever you want. No, what you have the right is to follow your conscience, 
but your conscience needs to be molded by the word of God. So, what we are talking about, what Sibs is getting at in the book, is this idea of being patient, bearing with people who are wrong about their judgments. There's a strong brother and the weak brother. But you need to persuade him. You need to help him and be patient with him. So he says it this way at the end of the chapter. He says, conscience is a tender and delicate thing and must be so treated. It is like a lock. If its workings are faulty, it will be troublesome to open. Have you ever had a door that you needed to unlock? Uh, jamming it, jamming the lock is just going to break the lock. And so that's what he's saying. Like forcing someone to just uh, eat the pork, so to speak, to do what you say is, is right or wrong is not going to work. It's not going to help them grow. Patiently persuading and teaching and praying, that's how you deal and deal with them in a merciful way. So how do we do that? Well, he gives us three points on page 35. Three lessons. So this is the rest of our, our lesson. Three lessons about how to deal with the weaker brother. First, he says, be careful about your example to a less mature believer. Be careful about your example to a less mature believer. I'll quote him. He says, Let us be watchful in the use of our liberty and labor to be inoffensive in our behavior, that our example compel them not, I mean, not compel them to sin. There is a commanding force in an example, as there was in Peter, Galatians chapter 2. Looseness of life is cruelty to ourselves and to the souls of others. Though we cannot keep those who will perish from perishing, yet if we do that which is apt of itself to destroy the souls of others, their ruin is imputable to us. Uh, so as we're trying to help people's consciences be persuaded, we don't want to just let them think things are okay. It's okay to do this and that because you do it. So be careful about how your life sets an example. Uh, you know, entropy. Entropy is, best I understand it, everything goes to disorder. Everything is falling apart. Things tend to disorder. And I think you can apply that spiritually. Everything tends towards looseness. Uh, most people um, struggle not with being too holy, but with not being holy enough. I think we can always, near, almost always say that, that in the culture, in our lives, we are always tending to slip to become more loose. Uh, maybe some of you saw this article in World Magazine. It was called, Does Hollywood Need a Swear Jar? And uh, some people did research on 
analyzing how many swear words were used in movies. And they found that in 1985, a certain word, I won't tell you one, which one, a certain word was used 511 times in, I guess, all the movies that came out in 1985. 511 uses of one word. Somebody want to guess how many of that word were used in 2023? Yeah, I missed a Two million? <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> A little closer. I have no prizes for you, though. 100,000. Wow, you guys are very pessimistic. Uh, <laughs> John? 5,000? Okay. 22,177. Okay, so 511, uh, about 30 years ago. 22,000 uh, last year. That's quite, a, that's quite a lot. What is that, like 44 times? Uh, as many bad of the same bad word. So obviously, I mean, and all of us, you know, as we're, if you were alive in 1985 or close to that, you, you, you've seen that happening, right? It's, it's pretty obvious how in culture, uh, the standard of what is acceptable just goes down and down and down and down with words and with many other things. So uh, we need to beware our own tendency to always slip and live more loosely uh, because here's how it works. Uh, if I live loosely, then the person younger than me is gonna live a little more loosely than me. And then the person younger than him is gonna live a little more looser and so on and on and on. So we beware of our example. Let me, well, I'll, I'll give a general example. I had a few examples, but I'll just give a general for now. I don't know that we have enough time. Um, we should consider our example in front of children and young people, and especially as relating to the church. It matters what church a family is a part of. And it's not just because you want to hear good preaching, but when you want your family to be in a church, you want your church to be an example to your family. And we all should realize that every single one of us who is a member of the church is an example to all of the children. Uh, the children look around, they see how we behave, how we interact with each other, they hear the words that we speak or don't speak. They, just like kids might learn words in all sorts of places, they're gonna, they can learn words at church. And so even the, the non-swear words that maybe are just eh, you know, borderline, well, kids are going to learn those words as they hear just adults talking. They'll see your example. They see how you uh, come to worship how you love to worship. They'll see, uh, I remember, you know, one preacher uh, telling a story about how he would look at people holding the hymnal and he would see their hands shaking. And then he would look up 
and he'd see them crying. And that made a, a, an enormous impact on him as a boy. Here's, here's a grown man in tears as he's praising God. So they see your example. Uh, they see the examples of those who teach Sunday school, who chaperone at a retreat. You know, if you're a, if you're a retreat chaperone, you become like uh, one of the, the guys that the little boys look up to. So all of these things are ways that you just need to be aware of how you are reflecting what it means to follow Christ. And so, as Sibs would say, let us be watchful in the use of our liberty. Let us labor to be inoffensive in our behavior. Paul told Timothy, Timothy as a church leader, but we can say it to, to all of us, set them an example in speech, in conduct, in faith, in love, and in purity. May all of us set the example. Okay, so that was the first lesson. Be careful about your example. Second lesson, Sib says, don't misrepresent others' actions. Don't misrepresent others' actions. So here's what he says. Let men take heed of taking up Satan's office, misrepresenting the good actions of others, as Satan did for Job. Does Job fear God for nothing? That's what Satan said to God about Job. Uh, um, so be careful about misrepresenting or slandering their persons, judging of them according to the wickedness that is in their own hearts. Uh, in their own hearts, so meaning the wickedness in your heart, you project onto why someone is doing that. He says, the devil gets more by such discouragements and reproaches that are cast upon religion than by fire and burning at the stake. So the devil will accomplish more by discouraging immature believers uh, with your misrepresenting them than by burning them at the stake. Uh, these, as unseasonable frosts, nip all gracious inclinations in the bud. And as much as in them lies, with Herod, they labor to kill Christ in young professing Christians. A Christian is a hallowed and a sacred thing, Christ's temple. He that destroys his temple, him will Christ destroy. So he's saying be careful about misrepresenting good actions of others because you can nip the grace of God at work in them, nip it in the bud, and kill their young faith. So when I think about misrepresenting people's actions, I always try to keep in mind this idea of consistency. So there's a difference between what a person's beliefs or behavior are going to lead to or actually lead to versus what is what they would consistently lead to. Okay, I hope that makes sense. And I, I always just keep in mind that people are really inconsistent. All of us are inconsistent in our behaviors and our beliefs. Um, so we should warn people, if you start down this path, then consistently you will possibly go down, if you were consistent with your point, you would go down this path. But what we shouldn't do is accuse them, well, you did this, 
So you're already down that path. I'll try to give an example. Here's a doctrinal example. Do you believe the gospel if you're not a Calvinist? Do you believe the gospel if you're not a Calvinist? So here's how some people would say. Would say. Arminians say that you have to choose your salvation. Choosing is something that you do. Therefore, Arminians believe you have to do something to be saved. Therefore, conclusion, only Calvinists really believe the gospel. Okay? So you see the, it's perfect logic. It, it makes complete sense. So what's the problem there? What's the premise that is wrong? Well, the argument would work if Arminians were consistent. Uh, but they're not consistent. They don't believe choosing salvation is a work. Okay? Now, we would say, well, it is something that you do. But they would say, no, it's not something you do. It's not a work that adds to your salvation. If you read to them Ephesians 2, uh, faith is a gift of God, Arminians would say, amen. I totally agree with that. Okay, so, so some of you might be thinking, but, but, but it, how does that make sense? That's the point. It doesn't make sense. No. If faith is a gift of God, then it does depend on God. It's not of us. But they haven't worked out that logical implication. So, I shouldn't accuse an Arminian of not believing the gospel, even though consistently that's where their beliefs would lead down. Now here's another, well, moving on to a related but not exactly on the issue of consistency, but here's another example about misrepresenting people's actions. Uh, I hope this example doesn't get me in, in any hot water here. But suppose there's an immature believer uh, he, he has some younger kids, just became a Christian. Uh, so as a, as a man, he didn't spend a lot of time with his kids, and then he becomes a Christian, and he knows, like, oh, I got I to gotta really spend time with my kids. I got to be a good dad and involved with my, my kids' lives. And so it's the end of October. And he says, you know what? I want to do something special with my kids. I'm going to take them trick-or-treating. So he dresses them up takes them trick-or-treating, and you in the church, you're convinced Halloween is Satan worship, okay? And you might be fully convinced of that, uh, that to partake in Halloween is, is to partake in the worship of Satan. So your conscience doesn't let you do that. And then the young man comes, and he gets his phone, and he says, hey, man, I'm so excited. I had this special time with my kids. I dressed up my kids as a giraffe, and, and uh, we had this great time trick-or-treating, and you just look at him and you're like, you took your kids to worship Satan? What, what were you thinking? So is that, is that a way to treat the immature believer? No, I think that would do exactly what Sibs is saying. That would nip his grace in the bud. I guess this does relate to the issue of consistency because that guy isn't, taking his kids trick-or-treating because he wants to worship Satan. So don't accuse him of doing that. That's not what, it's, what is in his mind at all. 
So you would want to encourage that guy. Not that you would, you know, if you feel strongly, not that you would want to encourage him to that particular thing, but you encourage his desire as a father to spend that time with his kids, right? I think that's one way we need to be careful about misrepresenting people's actions. So, number three, if I haven't lost you yet, if you're not all mad at me at this point. Number three, um, let's see what he says. Among the things that are taken, to be taken heed of, there is among ordinary Christians a bold usurpation of censure towards others, not considering their temptations. Some will unchurch and unbrother in a passion, but ill humors do not alter true relations. Though the child in a fit should disclaim the mother, yet the mother will not disclaim the child. So here's what he's saying. Point number three, don't cancel other Christians. Don't cancel other Christians. Um, He's talking about how we often want to put ourselves as the judges. We want to say whether someone is a true believer or not cancel them. Well, clearly that person's not a believer because I see him doing this. Um, Or a church. Clearly this church is not a true church because it does this. Now, of course, the Bible does give guidance on the situations where it's right to make that determination, right? So there's serious sin and discipline and uh, heresy, and, and we have the right to make those determinations. But What he's talking about here is these difficult issues, these doubtful issues that that aren't as clear, and yet there's a tendency in in some people to just say, well, because I disagree with him, he must be an unbeliever if he believes that. That must be a false church because they don't do things the way that we do. So we can disagree, we can have our standards, have lines in the sand and say this is what we believe, But when it comes to other believers, we need to make sure we have the spirit of grace as we disagree with them. We also need to be sure sure that we look at our tendency to pride, to not look down on others because they don't do the things the way that we do them. So, again, you might be the stronger brother. You might be right. But... Are you looking down on them because you have pride that you're the stronger brother? So one more quote from him to summarize the lesson. He says, men must not be too curious in prying into the weaknesses of others. We should labor rather to see, to see what they have that is for eternity. To incline our heart to love them instead of being estranged by the weakness which the Spirit of God will in time consume. Some think it's strength of grace to endure nothing in the weaker, whereas the strongest are ready, readiest to bear with the infirmities of the weak. So, again, if you're the stronger brother, the way you show that you're the stronger brother is by being the most able to bear with the weak. He goes on, where most holiness is, there is most moderation, where it may be without prejudice of piety to God and the good of others. So again, he's saying, it doesn't mean we don't have standards, but 
where moderation towards the people. We see in Christ a marvelous temper of absolute holiness with great moderation. We need not pretend to be more holy than Christ. The Holy Ghost is content to dwell in smoky, offensive souls. Oh, that the Spirit would breathe into our spirits the same merciful disposition. The Church of Christ is a common hospital where all are in some measure sick of some disease or another. So we all have occasion to exercise the spirit of wisdom and meekness. So think about how you can exercise that meekness with others who come, on, come into this hospital immature and sick. We need God's help. Uh, let's pray together. Lord, we praise you again for the mercy of Christ to us, for his merciful disposition towards us in bearing with our infirmities. Now we think back, uh, those who have, of us who have been Christians for a while, we think to uh, our great sins and immaturities in the past and, and how you have helped us. Lord, we pray that you would continue to help us uh, to be humble, that we would humble ourselves under your mighty hand. Help us to remember that we have nothing that we did not receive from you. Give us this grace, and we pray that we, as a church, would uh, continue to be meek and bear with, and we pray that you would bring new believers, that you would save people who are coming out of backgrounds that are uh, completely foreign to the word of God and to the gospel, but that you would do a work of grace in their hearts and you would help us to be your instruments to help them in their spiritual growth and grow them into maturity. Help us all, Lord Jesus to be more and more conformed into your image. We pray that you would do this as we come then the rest of this day to worship you. We pray for the ministry of the word uh, throughout this day that it would continue to have an effect upon our hearts to make us more like Jesus. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.